So we are back after a little bit of a hiatus. Yes, I didn't get maternity leave from my employer, but I got a little maternity leave from the podcast. That's right. Thank you, Jeff. (laughs) It wasn't, you were as much part of the decision as I was. (laughs) This isn't a patriarchy. No, I know. I'm just, I was just kidding. My boss, Jeff, gave me some time off, but no. Yeah. Nor is it an oligarchy. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Russia's invading Ukraine right now while we're recording this. Yeah. You sound like, I don't know how you can say it like so, like, like I've I've just been a mess the last few days because I just cannot believe what's happening right in front of us. I'm blown away by it. I'm sickened and sad and scared and it's just, it's horrible. See, I think it's, it's, I think for those of us who are Gen Z, Gen X, I think we're like, oh yeah, I remember this feeling. You're like, I remember doing bomb drills under my desk. It's like, I remember worried that Russia was going to use nuclear weapons. Oh, really? see, I don't remember that at all. And now you're too I'm young. scared. You're, you're too young for that. Like that is, that is my childhood. That is my child. That is <laughs> elementary, middle and high school. Right so you're there. feeling nostalgic right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Let me put some, let me put some music from 1982 on and I'll just feel like, Oh yeah. It's like middle school. Just <laughs> vibing. Just vibing. Man, um, what a mess though. Isn't it? I'm just, I don't know. I think the whole thing is just so sad and, and I'm glad that we're recording now and I'm glad we're recording this episode because there's a lot of, breaking news like one story after another mm-hmm. right and so it's good to kind of get a handle on what is the history of the news well that is an amazing segue yeah today's episode we're going to talk about the news so let's let's get right into it Hello and welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. We're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. I mean, let's start before we turn to world news and then talk about our kind of rationale for for what we're doing with this episode and probably a couple of episodes because I realized as I got ready for today, one episode's probably not going to be enough for what we want to do here. Um. I mean, you know me, I want to pull us back to, to medieval and then Roman history before that. Oh, Jesus. See, I wasn't even prepared for that. I thought we were doing American. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, then but I'll just see, tune in and listen to you and ask some, but you some, see, some pointed to, questions. To understand the context, you have to go back. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, never. I mean, we've said this before. Never ask an historian to explain anything because suddenly you'll find yourself. It's like, well, it's t- about 200, 251 uh, CE. Right. This happened. Right. Um, it is a gorgeous day in Southern California. It is clear, not very windy, high 60s, low 70s, beautiful. This is why I live in san diego the weather today well i i can't complain about the weather here today it's it's been pretty nice here too i mean i i think the last time we recorded i was like in the seventh circle of hell with the heat Mm -hmm. but it's really really nice in february uh i think florida in february is something to to behold and now i understand why people from new york all come down here because it's like oh it actually is really really nice during february it's not humid it's nice and warm um sunny it was kind of cold there a couple of weeks ago it was cold a couple weeks ago but i'd take that any day over the the humid heat you know yeah it was it was really cold but now i mean today it's a little chillier than usual it's like high 50s but yesterday it was like 75 and sunny and the day before that 75 and sunny and i think the rest of the week we're looking at that too that kind of just mid 70s sunny not humid um and then by next week we're going to get up into the mid 80s which is a little steamy but it's not humid yet so i've been enjoying the weather um i've been enjoying the weather in february 
I mean, it doesn't get gross for a while. It doesn't get gross till like late spring. Um, so, yes. So Russia is in the process of trying to invade the Ukraine or Ukraine, not not the trying to has done it. Well, yes, but they haven't. I mean, I was just reading a couple of articles in various news sources talking about how they're really behind their timetable. The Pentagon saying that the Russian military had this timetable and they are behind their timetable um, because they it turns out invaded. I mean, they're, Oh, they've in invaded, there. they've invaded, but they have not like toppled the Ukrainian government, replaced Zelensky. Done, they haven't done any of that. They better not um, touch that man. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think when we first talked about doing this episode, this was way before Putin's threats against Ukraine were even on anybody's radar, really. Um, and it, it more had to do with the aftermath of the 2020 election and then stuff that persisted through 2021 with kind of news stories about the pandemic and COVID. And, you know, I, Oftentimes I have students come to me and they want to know, well, I mean, where can I get credible news? Like, where should I go for news? I get that question a lot. And and I point them to, to some sources that I think are pretty credible, reasonable news outlets that aren't, that don't have a political agenda. So let me ask you then first, where do you get your news? Um. Uh, See, I'm kind of a news junkie, though. Like, I'm going to give you, like, the (laughs) set. I'm going to give you the set of things I do. So for California news, I read the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. I read the LA Times. I get their notifications every Um, day. Because I don't read that terrible newspaper we have in San Diego, um, which is basically a glorified penny saver. It's it's really bad, isn't it? It's a bad newspaper. It is. then for like international news, I read the Washington Post. Um, I will read parts of the New York Times if I'm feeling, if I'm missing New York, things like that. Or or I like New York Times particularly for their like non-newsy sections, like their art section, the book section, stuff like that. Do you do the mini? Yeah, I do. I do the yeah. mini, yeah. Um and then I read, there are a couple of magazines I read. Um, I like The Atlantic a lot. I like The Atlantic a lot. I just forwarded, uh, just posted to some of my students um, a really great op-ed they had this morning in The Atlantic that Putin thought he was taking advantage of weakness and kind of uh, Western liberalism, he viewed kind of a wedge that he could open up and, and it seems to have backfired. I mean, this morning, Switzerland seemed to get on board with sanctions against Russia. So that's the first time they've broken their neutrality. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was shocked when Sweden and Finland did. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're right in the firing line there though, because this is not the first time the Russians have threatened their sovereignty. Yeah. Right. So they they have a really good understanding of like, look, this could go south for us pretty quick, too, with this nut. Yeah. So, you know, I look at all of those. Um, I do poke around on a couple of the major news channels just to see what they're saying, because I like to see what they're leading with. Um, Although I would say this, I don't really trust either one of them. When you mean either one, when you for CNN or Fox, I don't trust either one do you, for like do MSNBC. A, uh, I think that one's even more overtly biased. It is overtly CNN. biased, but I like I like how overtly biased it is because I I also watch Fox. Yeah, because I like to see. Okay, I always tell my students this: watch MSNBC and watch Fox News, and the truth is somewhere there in between. Yeah, but there are some things they never even report on. Neither one. Neither one. Because well, that's why I like international news sources. I read um, Al Jazeera every day. I will watch the BBC occasionally. BBC, yeah. Um, I read um, other things I read pretty regularly. I read The Economist. Yeah, I read The Economist. 
I also read foreign policy. Um, Democracy else? Now. Democracy Now is okay. I think they, uh, Democracy Now for me is kind of like NPR. I like NPR uh, a lot. I like, I like NPR, but I just get frustrated because I turn it on and then we're stuck in a 45 minute spot about this woman who makes quilts in Nebraska. I really like that stuff. I'm just like, uh, it's fine. But if you're like looking for news. Right, right. No, looking for, yeah, yeah, you're right. But I do really like their, like This American Life I really like. And yeah. Like that. I mean, they're entertaining. Um, yeah. But they're not news, right? I mean, it's, so, I mean, this is, you know, where you get the news is important. And I think it's important we have a discussion of, how the news became what it is today in the United States, particularly. Um, Because I think it helps you understand that a lot of the, a lot of the critiques leveled against MSNBC and Fox, it's actually nothing new. That gives me comfort. I like to share that with students of like, look, this partisanship is not new. This is actually very American. This is the news in this country since the very beginning. That's how news outlets were founded, was on partisan lines. And we're no more divided now, really, than we've been at other times. Yeah. In fact, I don't know. I think we were probably more divided. I mean, the nastiness that they would write about each other. But there wasn't a comment section. Well, yeah, Federalist <laughs> versus uh, uh, Republican newspapers. But I mean, so here's so let's go back. I mean, what is a newspaper? What's this relationship with the news? Um, I didn't know that there's like a big kind of controversy about what exactly the news is. And when we start dating it, um, I would say this. We can't really talk about a newspaper that we talk about in today's sense before Gutenberg and the printing press with movable type, because you've got to be able to kind of print this in a number to distribute it. Um, I mean, it seems to initially emerge these little gazette things in Venice in the 16th century. Um, But what is usually credited as the first paper uh, is published in the German States in uh, what is it? 15, what is it? 1605 um, by Johann Carolus. And it was called oh, Relation Aller, Aller, Fernem, uh, my German is horrible. Fernemen und Gedingt werden historian. It's an account of all distinguished and commemorable stories. I was going to say, you probably definitely butchered that title. I did. Um, And most historians who study the news and most associations, including the World Association of Newspapers, actually say that this is the first newspaper in kind of a modern sense. Now, there is a critique because it's not formatted quite the same. It's formatted more like a book, even though it's kind of distributed regularly. Um, if you want to look at something that's even more clearly formatted, like we think of with newspapers, you have to go to the Dutch and um, basically the translation of that piece is current events from Italy, Germany, etc. cetera. Um, and it's first published in 1618 and it uses like multiple columns. So it actually looks like something we would think of as a newspaper. And initially, most news, um, these early newspapers put a real focus on two things, business and political events. Um, and that was pretty much it. With a much more kind of, kind of slanting towards business as the main focus. And it's not actually until much later that you kind of have kind of the full array of news stories that start to fill newspapers. But 
we have those. And, and from the very beginning, states, government authorities are really watching what these newspapers are publishing very carefully. And by the time we get to the United States or the American colonies, which is, I think, what we mostly want to focus on today, I mean, there are a couple of attempts to publish early newspapers, including one uh, that Benjamin Harris, not the president, Benjamin Harris uh, publishes in 1690 called Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and, and Domestic. He tries to publish it in Boston, publishes one issue. It's clearly meant to be a weekly, publishes one issue, and the governor cracks down on it and says, no, you can't do that. Um, finally, 1704, we get our first newspaper in the American colonies, the Boston Newsletter. Um, and what's interesting is one of the lines on that newspaper says it's published by authority. So I think this is a really interesting thing is that 1704, there's, there's this awareness that you have to have some kind of credibility. You have to make people trust what you're putting, what you're printing. Um, I mean, the New York Times famous byline is all the news that's fit to print. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where newspapers start, but they quickly shift once kind of the nation is independent. They switch from kind of really kind of being united about criticizing things that are happening back in England or in London that are affecting the colonies. After independence, they quickly moved to very partisan quarters. Um, and... I think that's where we kind of want to start, right? Partisan nature of like early Republic newspapers. Yeah. I mean, we could go on a whole, we could go on a whole thing about Ben Franklin and well, the Pennsylvania yeah, Gazette and that's all that whole stuff. Deal. And I mean, I think the thing to point out though, is pre-revolution, um, the, the newspapers really do take off as a means of spreading information about independence, mm -hmm. about the coming revolution. Mm -hmm. And, and that the, um, the biggest thing, the stamp acts, or, you know, kind of what, sorry, the stamp acts are kind of what really caused a lot of, you know, fervor for revolution, because the point of the stamp act was that you had to buy stamps and place it on every single paper that was sold. Mm -hmm. And that's what was costing so much money. And there was so much consumption of newspapers and people liked newspapers so much that um, it that's what kind of created a lot of the discontent in the colonies. And it's kind mm -hmm. of rooted in the idea of like these early newspapers and that people were really starting to rely on them and like them. Well, it's, I mean, it's funny because when I teach the, the revolution, I always tell students a lot of the intolerable acts really don't affect people that have much of a voice but Parliament comes along and does this Stamp Act in 1765, and it, it, it targets lawyers, gamblers, because the stamp has to go on cards as well, and printers of newspapers and broadsides. So it's like, it's, this one act manages to piss off group a, a, a wide group of people many of them who are influential or have, or have kind of the ability to, to, to change things or to kind of get involved in things. Well, and they have the ability to report on it. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are most widely affected by it. And then they also have the means of reporting about it in their newspapers. So it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting to me how, um, you know, these taxes, the taxes that were levied at the colonies did target um, kind of the wealthier merchant middle class kind of, but that it, the, the news of it was able to be disseminated simply because it was taxing those people. Right. And they were the ones who were going to announce it. And that's what spread the word so quickly about revolution. And that, you know, the printing of the common sense pamphlet was really important in all of this as well. But after the revolution, that's when you really do start to see the partisan politics taking off. Mm -hmm. Well, there was already, I, I mean, e 
in the revolution itself, there was this kind of, you had these Patriot newspapers who were very critical of loyalists and new people who were neutral. Right. And, and I know you do this with your students, just like I do, that's explaining a large number of people were kind of neutral during the revolution. And these Patriot newspapers really critique that neutrality. Yes. Um, well, and then a lot of people who were printing in like loyalist newspapers were sort of run out of town. Mm-hmm. They had to seek refuge in places that were a little more friendly toward loyalists, New York. Um, but there wasn't a lot of space South for Carolina. dissent, right? Yeah, there you, there was no... So dissent was nothing you would see within a paper itself. You might see the paper itself as a, as a whole dissenting against a certain view, but you wouldn't see internal dissent within a newspaper, right? You wouldn't see like two different stories that contradicted one another or argued different things. Right. Because there was interest within the paper and they weren't even wanting to print like the other side of the story. Right. Right. So, you know, newspapers grow during the revolution. And then once independence happens, they kind of explode. And a lot of it has to do with lining up with different interests within the government or, or different political interests. Right. I mean, it's, it's basically you get an alignment of newspapers with the the parties. Initially it's federalist and anti-federalist as you're having the debates over ratifying the constitution. But that, that basically boils down to uh, Federalist versus Republican. And, you know, what's interesting is if you were a Federalist, you would read Federalist newspapers. If you're Republican, you would read Republican newspapers. And Well, and that's, that's what's interesting, too, is you would pick which news you wanted to consume, much like we do now. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really broad access to other sources. You would have to subscribe or pay for it or have it delivered to you. And people weren't willing to go to those lengths necessarily to hear the other side. Whereas you can open one tab, you know, on your computer, that's the LA Times and another tab that's the San Diego Union Tribune. And you can kind of read from both if you wanted to. Although Mm -hmm. that's kind of changing now with um, the paywalls. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of an interesting thing, too, because all these newspapers, for the most part, are money making endeavors. Um, even the ones that are most clearly aligned to th- with the parties, they still need to raise money to support the publication of those those papers. Um, but almost from the beginning of these new American newspapers, they start to use controversy to draw readers. And one of the first cases actually results in Alexander Hamilton's death. Would you say it results in his death because the newspapers were so incendiary? Yeah, the newspapers really played up this supposed insult that Hamilton had said about Burr, um, that Burr had said in response to Hamilton. Newspapers really played this up and they end up having a duel across the Hudson River from New York City and Hamilton dies. Um, I mean, it's interesting when you teach like high school history, you talk about yellow journalism that kind of emerges at the end of the 19th century. I mean, newspapers from the beginning are, are trying to attract readers and retain readers. So they kind of print salacious stories. So this is nothing new. It's clickbait. It's it's clickbait, right? I mean, it's and I find that interesting. I didn't realize it was pervasive as I thought it was that early. Um, so you have that, and on the other side, you have, you know, embedded in our Bill of Rights is this ability, you know, we've got a freedom of the press and freedom of speech, right? They're supposed to safeguard our ability to criticize the government. Um, almost immediately, though, the federal government really keeps a close eye on newspapers, particularly if it's a newspaper aligned with the party that's not in power. Right. Are you thinking of like John Adams administration, yeah. the Alien yeah. Sedition Acts? Yeah. 
I mean, it's state censorship becomes a big issue. And it's during the French Revolution that this kind of first bubbles up because there's a real conflict on how that should be covered. And eventually it ends up being this kind of scandal. And, you know, Adams and other people are very much, they are so opposed to the idea of mobocracy, right, of a mob ruling that they are okay with doing things that certainly seem to violate the Bill of Rights. Um, well, because it's such a young moment in the nation's history. And I think there's a lot of fear over discontent. They're also still pretty unfamiliar with uh, this form of government. They're still not used to not having like this monarchy or this absolute rule. And it makes them pretty uneasy. They don't just accept all of the, you know, what we consider as like fundamental American ideals. They don't just accept those outright. Because they're kind of nervous about them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's this is an experiment. I mean, that's what we forget is that at the beginning of the 19th century, the United States is very much still an experiment. Um, and what's interesting is we start to get these technological innovations that transform the news as well. So... You have larger printing presses that come along. You have printing presses that are capable of printing many more copies of the news. Um, Eventually, you're going to get the introduction of a new form of paper using wood pulp that's a lot cheaper than the rag paper, the rag paper they had been using. All of these things are going to make the news more inexpensive to distribute. And by the time we get the telegraph, you're going to be able to kind of transmit stories wherever those wires take you. Well, that's one of the biggest technological innovations of the 19th century, right? It's the telegraph. I would say period. Of the period, yeah? I No, I would say period oh, just, of human. It is of human. Of human hmm. it's, it's the ability to transmit knowledge at the speed of light. Right, at very quick speeds, yeah. And, and that does transform... But see, well, I would the, say it's human, not the speed of light. I'm going to get some no, engineers going to get on here and say it's not the speed of light. <laughs> it's near instantaneous. But see, I would say that you so you're like, oh, that's just period. That's like the biggest technological innovation. Yes. But I would argue in relation to this podcast is the printing press is, is that's the big one. I mean, no. it allows stuff to be. It it decreases the cost. I don't think it increases the speed. It does increase the speed some, but it doesn't increase it like something like the telegraph does. I mean, once once telegraph's lines are down, I mean, somebody in Savannah, something can happen in Savannah and people in Boston can know about it that day. Right. But the printing press allows for the wide dissemination of knowledge and right. ideas. Right. But okay. yes, this allows for it really quick. So they go hand in hand. That's what it is, yeah. right? The yeah. news and this podcast, like this is why it's important is because all these technological innovations go hand in hand. And ultimately what it does is it increases our access to to knowledge, right? And, and I think what's interesting is the particularly the telegraph and kind of changes in the 1830s, you still have most papers are aligned politically with one party or the other, but you start to get these new independent newspapers that get published. And these become really popular because their focus shifts away from politics as the only main, as the only concern. Right. And they start reaching specific audiences of people who want to hear that sort of information. They can be religious pamphlets. Mm -hmm. um, They can be, you know, yeah, something just a, a not about, not about politics. And it just allows for wider readership. It draws new audiences in um, and it just diversifies the news world or the, the media world. And literacy is going up in the country. Right. Right. By the mid 19th century, you do start to see compulsory education and literacy going up. And that that's, you know, the whole thing with the printing press, too, is like now that you can widely disseminate information, people do start to be able to read more. 
Um, and newspapers really do contribute to everyday literacy. Well, I mean, it's during the revolution. Literacy was still low enough in some regions that somebody would, you know, stand up in a tavern and read a broadside or read selections from a newspaper aloud because there were still a sizable number of people who could not do that on their own. And I mean, that starts to change. Um, and, you know, you, so you get independent newspapers, you have the party line newspapers, independent newspapers trying to appeal to a broad array of people um, and, and maybe not cover politics so much, have to find other things to fill the newspaper with. Um, meanwhile, the politically aligned newspapers are always trying to come up with innovative new ways to kind of convey the party message. So editorials become very sophisticated and you also have the introduction of editorial cartoons. And, you know, an editorial cartoon is a, a when it's done well, it's very powerful because it can say a lot in one illustration that would take pages of text to convey. Um, and one of the big purposes of newspapers with their, you know, the political partisanship at this time is kind of telling people who are members of a party, like, hey, this is how you're supposed to vote, right? Mm -hmm. Here are the candidates. This is what the issues are. Here's what you're supposed to do. And it's kind of like an instruction manual for people in a way. Well, they would have polls as well and predictions about upcoming elections. They would be like, look, this is, this is what we think is going to happen. Um, I mean, famously, when Truman won re-election, papers have been printed signaling his defeat. But this is nothing new. I mean, newspapers during the 19th century, they would actually be really reticent to admit defeat for their party for days or weeks after the election. That sounds familiar. It, it, I mean, this is the thing is the more I read about this stuff, I was like, wow. So like nothing's changed. I mean, it's like you said earlier, it did make me feel a little bit better, though. Because I was like, oh, yeah, we're no more divided than they were then. I mean, you've got newspapers refusing to kind of admit Jefferson's victory. You've got and then you've got newspapers refusing to admit Jack's like that's nothing new. When refusing to report it. Yeah, right. Right. Um, if we don't report it, it didn't happen. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I guess the question, too, now I mean, that we can talk a lot about like newspapers moving west. And I think that that has a huge part of establishing these communities and towns and stuff. But has there ever just been true news? Can the news be objective? I mean, well, I don't know. So I think the New York Times, which gets founded after the Missouri Compromise. So during a period where newspapers start to shift because you start to see abolitionists. I mean, the funny thing is, is after the Missouri Compromise, particularly, you start to see some newspapers are either overtly abolitionist newspapers or kind of covertly abolitionist newspapers. Um, but the New York Times is founded in 1851, and one of its objectives is to present balanced reporting um, and to not go for the sensational um, you know, or the tawdry or, or anything like that. And for the most part, I think they succeed. And when New York does that, you start to see increased pressure in other cities, major, major cities that maybe there's this opening for somebody to try something that's not a politically aligned newspaper. Um, a clear separation. I mean, this is one thing I always do with my students and, you know, they used to do this on the nightly news and I wish they still did it because it made it clear what was going on. So like Walter Cronkite would report the news on CBS. And at one point in the evening, they would be like, and now an editorial and either he would turn and they change the camera and they'd have like editorial or opinion or something on the bottom or it would be somebody else speaking entirely. And they made it clear that what they were now saying was not a matter of news, but a matter of editorial opinion. And I think that's what you see starting to happen in the mid 19th century is 
newspapers like the New York Times are pushing this thing that you've got to distinguish between when you're just trying to objectively report something happening versus when you're editorializing. Well, and it's not just the editorializing, because the reason I think that this the New York Times are in response too to this like yellow journalism, right? Where this mm-hmm. really sensational entertainment style enquirer kind of um, what is the one now? The New York Post is the New York Post. The no. New York Post. New York the New York Post. Post has always been out there. It, it always has some, some very interesting. It's, it's New York's own. It's New York's own National Enquirer, basically. Yeah. But so that the New York Times is kind of in a response to that. It's like you know, there's such a proliferation. There's so many different types of news and styles and sensationalism and entertainment value that it's kind of a response to that to say you know this is just going to be like an objective telling the news. And I like what you said about the way that the news used to be reported on television of like you know, changing camera angles and making it very clear what was or was not opinion, because we really don't have that anymore. And I think that that's one of the most difficult things for students. Um, they go online and they read whatever, and they, that's, that's just, they just take it, you know, and they just say like, that's what it is. And I had an incident the other day where I had a students, I have a, a newspaper assignment where I asked them to go out and read current events from reputable sources, et cetera. And I asked them, I said, where do you get your news? And they said, not, not as a joke. They said, TikTok. That's frightening. It is. But you know, I mean, yeah, but it's like, I'm not trying to make fun of it, but like, it is very Why? scary. Why not make fun of it? It's hilarious. Well, <laughs> somebody would think that's a credible, like, you know what I watch on video on TikTok? There's this guy who has his two, um, uh, uh, Welsh corgis hmm. that he dresses up. Mm-hmm. That's what I watch on TikTok. Yeah, it's for entertainment, right? I mean, there is news <laughs> on TikTok. I I see new news on TikTok, mm-hmm. but then when I see something that I think, oh, this is news, then I go and vet it, right? Like I go and look for an actual news source on that. And they just Mm -hmm. don't, they just take it and then they move on to the next news story and then they, they just take it. Right. And they don't, they don't corroborate it. They don't um, check it in any way. And they're consuming this in one minute increments, three minute increments. Right. And they just scroll on to the next thing and they don't think past, you know, whether, you know, who, who that's coming from, who is saying that, why they're saying that none of those things, none of those things go through their mind. And and that that's, you're right. It's, it's kind of funny, but it's also like, well, I do think we need to take it head on and not just laugh at them, but teach them and say like, okay, that's a great place to start, but that's not a news source. Is it a great place to start? Well, if they have, yes, because it, if it pulls them in and gives them an interest in current events, Yes. And I think that it's, it's pretty curmudgeonly curmudgeonly to say otherwise, because if that's what draws them in to wanting to learn more, then I'm all for it. Mm. But I don't, I don't want them to stop there. You know, I'm not expecting everybody to like be the loser dork that I was when I was in high school and just like, (laughs) you know, looking at all the newspapers, you know, online, that was kind of like the start of it, you know, constantly being on CNN.com. Like, I don't expect that of them. I do want them to gain an interest. And if they get their interest through social media, I think that's fine, but they can't use that as the end point for their information gathering. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a curmudgeon when it comes to some things. Well, I mean, uh, it's, yeah. it, I mean, the thing is, I would blame, I would blame that TikTok mentality about news. I think it's it's just an extension of other social media kind of approaches to news. But I think all of that comes out of the twenty four hour news cycle and the the need to just fill up twenty four hours with stories. Yes. Um, and it's and like I said at the beginning of the episode, I think we're gonna have to do at least two episodes to get through all this because we haven't gotten even into the most this the period towards the end after the Civil War when this newspapers explode even more. Um, and and William Randolph Hearst and other people fundamentally changed the way newspapers 
are published and what they do and their role. Well, we've got time. Let's get into it. Well, we have time for that. Yeah. I don't think we can get into kind of like what happens with CNN and what happens to the oh, internet yeah, and what happens later, with yeah. that. I think we should do the um, next episode should be post World War II. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the Civil War. Um. Obviously, newspapers in the North are generally publishing things that are favorable for the Union. Newspapers in the South are publishing news things that are favorable for the Confederacy. But I did notice this. I did find out though that the South, because of kind of supply issues and priorities and stuff, it gets harder and harder for them to publish newspapers in the South. Um, whereas in the North, it never really seems to be as a big of an issue. Well, that's um, where the war is too, right? I mean, they're, right, in, they're in total right. crisis mode. But... Um, after the war, what I find really interesting, and this is something that I've used in my own research, you know, as you start to get this diaspora of um, freed black people coming out of the South, immigrating North, immigrating to the Midwest, immigrating to the West, immigrating to the far West, you get this profusion of, of African-American newspapers. Um, and... What I find really interesting with those is they are, they're an interesting microcosm of the broader newspapers published across the country. Um, But there is something that kind of links all of them, which is kind of the shared experience of this community. So the proliferation of black newspapers in the wake of the civil war, that is really an important part here because that's how we hear about lynching. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Ida B. Wells publishing in Memphis. Um, her newspaper state, her newspaper new, uh, storefront is bombed because she's reporting on le- a lynching in the South. And that is a really big part, an important part of their community building and the ways that news is shared amongst the African-American community, but then amongst communities um, outside of those regions who don't really know what's going on there. And mm-hmm. that's how, um, you know, politically you get news about what is happening with uh, Jim Crow in the South and with, you know, just the disparities that are happening, uh, racial disparities that are happening. And and it's the black newspapers that um, start to blossom after the civil war. I mean, there were some before that, of course, but um, it's just this. Well, they were abolitionists. They were very much geared towards abolition. Right, Right. Right. And then they transition during the war, although you get these a couple of newspapers in California because of a not insignificant number of black men who who immigrate to California for the gold rush. You get a couple of black newspapers in California as well. But then after the war's over, you get kind of this proliferation of newspapers. But at the same time, there's this problem because many of these people who had been enslaved it was illegal to educate slaves, um, to teach them to read. It was in many Southern states, it was, it was explicitly illegal to do that. And even after the abolition of slavery, after the end of the civil war, it's very difficult, particularly in the South for black people to get an education. And which is why one of the big jobs of the Freedmen's Bureau is to send people in to teach. But, right. but sometimes the audience for black newspapers was intended to be a white audience. Sometimes, sometimes. sometimes. Like with Ida well, B. Wells with Southern Horrors, I right. think she was trying to grab the attention of Northerners to say, hey, this is what's going on here. Yeah. I'm talking more about black community newspapers, right? Right, right. And, and they have a real economic issue towards the end of the 19th century because What's interesting, if you look at U.S. literacy rates, they're they're higher than England before the revolution. And then they dip a little bit, then they go up kind of steadily, steadily, steadily. And then they kind of start descending again, second half of the 19th century, before they finally start back up in the 20th century. Um, but, you know, it's if you are um, just struggling to make a new life for yourself, and to feed yourself or your family or, or whatever. I mean, 
buying a newspaper is pretty low on your list of priorities. And a lot of these newspapers really struggle to remain in business. Um, but enough of them do by 1890, you get the founding of this African-American Press Association, which is kind of a, a professional group for all of these newspapers, representatives of all of them to kind of come together. Um, but I think the point, I, one of the points I wanted to bring up with this is the news in the United States has always been geared towards specific communities, whether that's a community based around ethnicity or perceptions of race or shared condition. It's um, about mobilization of those groups. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's about politi- politics, right? right? I mean, you get a profusion in the mid-19th century, you start to get women's newspapers. Well, in the early 20th century, during the progressive era, you start mm-hmm. to see a lot of, because like you're saying, these the newspapers are targeted toward activist groups and political groups. And during the early 20th century, you really start to see women's newspapers blossoming and it's it, the information is geared toward the working class women sometimes mm-hmm. middle and upper class women and about suffrage um the progressive era sees newspapers flourish in terms of political uh, political ideology and trying to push reform and the the newspapers are each geared toward an interest group you're right and that those the interest group can fall along racial ethnic gendered um, or religious lines or profession, profession, the farmers, right. The Grangers. Right. So you get farmers Another, I mean, this is, and this is just, it's a fascinating kind of story on its own. And I think we need to do an episode related to this. You have these parallel labor movements in the late 19th, early 20th century. You have one happening in urban spaces, which happened to be with factory workers. Um, many of whom are relatively recent immigrants. Um, and then you have this, other situation taking place on farms, there are radical shifts that are happening in agriculture. Um, and even though with the telegraph and all of these things, communications are a lot faster and, and transportation is getting better, there's an isolation involved in being a farmer in a rural space. And it's hard for you as, an, as a small farmer in Iowa to do much on your own, you know, if you see things that are affecting your ability to sell your crops and things like that. So you get these granges, the grangers, these grange associations where you get these farmers would form these clubs and these associations and societies. And eventually they come up with these news, uh, newspapers and you subscribe to them because it's a place for you to see what's, what are new changes that are happening in agriculture? Um, are there new ways to do things? Um, it was also a place where they would list fairs and other kind of gatherings. It's a place for advertising. And advertising, right? I mean, it's these. It's funny because these Grange papers, unlike the African-American newspapers at the same time that in some communities are really struggling um, to stay afloat, these Grange papers, there's a no shortage of advertisers willing to advertise in them. And it really, for a while, brings that community together. Um, But we also get like the Women's Christian Temperance Union has a a national newspaper they're publishing. Um, NAACP starts to publish national newspapers. I mean, you get all of these and... At the same time, you get the emergence of these newspaper magnets, right? And I think those newspaper magnets inadvertently create kind of the journalism that Ida B. Wells does. So like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer come along and they parlay their initial ownership of smaller newspapers into national newspaper networks. And basically what that means is if you're a Hearst publication, you only need one reporter to write a story about something. And then it's wired to every other newspaper Mm -hmm. within that network. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also, so it allows for the rapid dissemination of of information and a story is pre-made. So you don't even have to have somebody sit down with the raw news and kind of craft a story. The flip side of that though is Hearst and Pulitzer and kind of other newspaper magnets, they have an incredible amount of 
power because they can choose to cover stories or they can choose not to cover stories. Right. And that's, and because it becomes nat national, like there's a nationwide uh, distribution of these stories, you're getting for the first time, really a huge, you know, the whole population is exposed to the same news, the same stories. Mm-hmm. You're not getting as much local intrigue or local stories. I mean, you, you can still have that. Of course, there's a huge, you know, there's a lot of newspapers, but um, you do get a lot of bias and um, selection, right? They're very selective about what they do and don't cover. And this is what we see today. If you want to find out what's going on in the world, like sometimes you have to really, really dig and dig and dig to find it. Because Or you, man- or you manufacture it. <laughs> right. Well, so Hearst... I didn't know this had come under fire, but so famously Hearst sends this reporter to Cuba. It looks like war may or may not break out between Spain and the United States. He sends this reporter to Cuba and the reporter basically telegraphs, telegrams Hearst and says, there will be no war. And Hearst responds, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. Right. Trying to sell newspapers. And this is yellow journalism, right? Mm-hmm. It's the idea that, you know, you you do sensational things. And if there's not enough that's sensational, you manufacture something. Um, Manufacturing I'll, crisis, right? Right. Um, I mean, so what's interesting is evidently a couple of historians have come and questioned whether that telegram was ever sent. Although they all agree it definitely captured Hearst's attitude about the whole situation. I mean, this is this this is why we get this saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Like if you're if a story is kind of bloody or violent or encompasses suffering of people, it will find its way to the front page. Hearst and Pulitzer are also the two who kind of pioneer the use of these huge headlines on the front page of a newspaper. Right. You don't attention. see that until the late late 19th and early 20th century, Mm -hmm. right? It used to, because newspapers that are really, really old newspapers are really hard to read. The print is teeny, 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 tiny, and there isn't giant headlines. And if you're looking for something specific, and I'm speaking from like, you know, going through microfilm and stuff like that, like you really have to look at every single bit. Uh, But yeah, the format of the newspaper changes and it's to draw you in and draw your attention and make you want to buy the paper and read the paper and it is, it is their job to sell newspapers at the end of the day. And they do manufacture crisis. Um, they will take stories, you know, the, like you said, the yellow journalism, and they'll sensationalize them. But then they'll also um, make the stories a lot more scary or urgent or something than they might need to be because it creates this fervor and, and the readers are hungry for more. And I mean, when you read about the history of it and you understand that and you know that it goes all the way back really to the beginning, it kind of does make you feel a little bit better about what goes on today because sometimes I get really despondent. Like, man, the news is just so messed up. Like it's so hard to find out what's actually going on and I'm so cynical about it, but really there's nothing new under the sun, right? This is all just kind of rooted in, in a kind of an American tradition. So you, I have to bring up, the National Police Gazette. Well, that's um, a golden one. It is one of my favorite Great things sources. ever. Yeah. Um, so the National Police Gazette is this thing that starts being published in the middle of the 19th century. And initially it's so National Police Gazette. Initially, it's supposed to be like telling about police stories and things. There's like recounting these stories that are gleaned most likely from other newspapers and I'll put in this national police gazette that's distributed and it's something for you to read, but it quickly morphs into something else. And it, it not only has those police stories and the tawdry of the story, the better. I mean, I just remember there's one issue where the cover story is of the maid who was having an affair with the master of the house and tried to knock the mistress of the house out and put her in an oven. 
And it's I got mean, this. I'd buy illus- that paper. And it's got I'd this illustration on the first on the front page of this woman, like putting this other woman into an oven. See, now this is also there's so much to be said here about gender. Oh, and yeah. about, you know, the way that and especially like white women, the way that white women consume news and the way that we consume true crime um, and and the way that we are constantly looking for something that to make us feel unsafe in a way. Um, mm. But that it does very much start in the mid 19th century. There's like this yellow journalism when it comes to crime reporting. And, you know, I've written a lot about crime and, and newspapers and um, they the stories that get covered, I mean, yeah, the bloodier, the better, the more scandalous, the better. If well, there's sex, sex starts scandal, to sell in this too, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, a lot of these scandals involve sex and murder and intrigue and all that. And again, it's just not very far off from what we see streaming on our Hulu and Netflix services. You know, the, how many freaking Ted Bundy documentaries have there been in the last decade? It's insane. I think um, there's a I think there's another movie coming out soonish. What what is what is the it's deal? It's a fascination. It's a fa- I don't know and I think we're going to I think that's definitely something we could talk about on our next episode about this this kind of modern the 24 fascination hour cycle. And, yeah, I yeah. think it I think it is. But it's going back to the National Police Gazette because I could like talk for hours. There's so about much this to thing. be said about the National so Police. So it has those crime stories, but it also introduces sports coverage. And it so what's interesting is this, the National Police Gazette is a precursor to so many men's, what we call men's lifestyle magazines, um, Sports Illustrated, GQ, but also Playboy. So initially it would have what was basically a centerfold in the middle of the Police Gazette. Do you know who was on the centerfold on these initial ones? We've talked about this before. We have, and it's not what you think. It's boxers. Boxers, that's right. Because I know we have It's famous about, yeah. boxers. Well, men are and obsessed with other men's bodies. Men are obsessed, right. And, yeah. they, and that was, but eventually it switches sometime in the early 20th century to women. I mean, we can go to the exact issue and see where it stopped being kind of boxers and baseball players, um, uh, then these other athletes and switches. But athletics is a huge thing in it. Um, and along with the crime and the sex, which is just such an interesting combination. Um, it, it is, if you ever get the chance to read an old issue of the national police, cause I, you definitely should. And please do not skip the advertising in the back because the advertising in the back is all about venereal diseases and increasing the size of your manhood. Well, in, in women's magazines, you start to see um, advertisements for vibrators. I, it's yeah. just... The 19th century is not as prudish as we might think it is. Well, but I would say this. The National Police Gazette was definitely something that if you were a middle class or upper class home, you did not have a copy at home. You would read it at the barbershop. Right. And that's and the right. barbershop really becomes this... It's this all-male location um, where... You really weren't, uh, you weren't subject to the scrutiny of kind of broader society. So you could read things like that. Um, I mean, what's interesting is this, and I think for years that continued, um, there were things, there were things men would read in the safety of a barbershop. They would never let their wives or daughters or mothers or the general public see them read. Um, but it's, it, yeah, I think the takeaway is, very niche, right? I mean, these newspapers are all really niche. There's really only a few attempts at producing somebody, something that almost everybody is going to want to read. There's kind of a, you know, a, a decision to avoid that. Although I think Hearst and Pulitzer, that's their dreams. Those are their, they both dream of that, right? Creating national newspaper networks that everybody reads. They want everybody. Right. They and, want everybody on the same page, so to speak. Yeah, on the same page. Wow. Already an hour. Um, and we haven't even gotten to World War One. Mm. 
What's wrong with where them? they where they start where they start to crack down on newspapers again? Right. Well, because of the scare politically, the scare of communism and mm-hmm. overthrow of revolution again. It's revolution that spurs this, right? Because during the French Revolution, we see a crackdown on newspapers in the 1790s, and then during the early 20th century with the mm-hmm. um, Bolshevik Revolution, we see a crackdown on newspapers because again, it's the way to disseminate information. And, you know, it's always targeted at specific groups of people and interest groups. And it kind of starts freaking out the powers that be if everybody's hearing about, you know, overthrow of government and revolution, et cetera. Um, I mean, was there a crackdown on newspapers in the 70s, in the late 70s, like during the Islamic Revolution? No. In the United States? No, yeah, no, because that's a... I mean, there is a conflict between the Washington Post and Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Go see our edit. Go go refer to our early uh, episode on impeachment. That's true, right? And Watergate. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's. I mean, Nixon tries to sabotage a newspaper because Mm -hmm. of it. But I think. But next time, I think I want to. I want us to definitely get through the wars. But I also want us to talk about how presidents start to try to dominate the news cycle. Right. It's our old friend T.R really takes it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, it's great to be back. Yeah. I don't know. Are we going to do one more episode on the news or are we going to have to do two more? I think we can do one. Okay. I have All faith right. in us. Okay. Wow. I hope we can. Thank you for All joining right. us. I'm glad we're back. Well, until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Mm-hmm.